Facial recognition technology is everywhere. UK police have been monitoring public spaces with it for some time. It is notoriously used in China to track and discipline citizens, and it might even be in your phone. Both Apple and Android have allowed you to unlock your mobile with your face for some time now. In Australia, it's already in use in Queensland and West Australia, and state and territory police departments all use it to some degree. Now, the way the Australian government uses facial recognition is set to change. A massive national database called the National Facial Biometric Matching Capability is in the works. The capability will take all of the passport, driver's licence and other ID photos held by the government, using facial recognition to match unidentified faces. The Home Affairs Department touts it as a powerful tool to combat identity theft. Critics say it represents massive government overreach and breaches citizens' privacy. In this episode, we look at how facial recognition technology works, how effective it is, and how it could affect the way we move through the world. You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Caitlin McHugh. For all the science fiction associations there are around facial recognition, until relatively recently, the stuff of dystopic futures rather than the present day, it isn't a particularly new technology. This face recognition technology has evolved in the past uh, several decades. It started, I would say, mid-1960s, and it has evolved a lot. This is Dr. Nabeen Sharma, Senior Lecturer in the School of Computer Science and Co-Director of Intelligent Drone Lab at the University of Technology, Sydney. So we start, I mean, this, this whole community started with, you know, detecting facial landmarks and all those things, right? And now we have something called deep learning, which is even faster and more accurate than the previous generation techniques. Nabeen's research focuses on using machine learning to identify crocodiles and sharks from drone footage. But the technology is similar to what's used to identify faces. The facial recognition software is fed images from a database of faces and learns to recognise and distinguish between them based on the distance between landmarks on the face, the eyes, ears and mouth, usually. These features and the distance between them are pretty unique to an individual, and with enough training, facial recognition software can match new faces to ones held in a database. Nabeen says there are two main kinds of facial recognition, one-to-one matching or verification, which simply tells you if someone is who they say they are. This one-to-one matching has been in use for some time. There are many areas which can be used, like we have seen in the airports, right? You don't have to go through that huge process of manual passport stamping and somebody sitting there and checking your identity with the passport. You don't have to do this. It's been all automated. You have cameras there, you have a system, you just scan your passport and it is being just verified with your identity. The other kind, which human rights advocates are far more leery of, is facial identification or one-to-many matching. So what happens in that case is, okay, this is a face, can you identify who is that person? So you have thousands and thousands of face uh, facial information in the database. And out of that, who is this person? That is what it does in the identification. This one-to-many matching is already being used in Australia. The largest scale use of facial recognition in Australia to date was at the 2018 Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast, and councils in West Australia and Queensland are using CCTV coupled with facial recognition. So how is the capability different? 
To understand how it works, we need to go back five years. I guess the place to start is in 2015, the government announced that they were rolling out a national facial biometric matching capability, which is where that sort of ominous name, the capability, comes from. This is Samantha Floriani, a campaigner with Digital Rights Watch, a charity focused on digital rights. They've been keeping a close eye on the capability as it progresses. That was supposed to be operational in mid-2016 with the purpose of it being able to enable agencies to share facial templates for the purpose of facial recognition. In 2017, the states and territories were brought on board. There was a COAG agreement between all of the states and territories, which essentially set up a system in which all of the states would have access to driver's license images. And then the the federal agency would supply the infrastructure to be able to use the facial recognition technology with that. Some states were reticent. There were a few limitations that they put in place. For example, with Victoria's limitation that they would only be able to be used by Victorian agencies, not by federal agencies, which is a really welcome pushback that we're happy to see. And ACT, from memory, they had issues with the technology being used for one-to-many matches. So ACT was much more comfortable with a one-to-one system, but not so much with a one-to-many system. But despite concerns, a majority of state and territory governments have signed on to the scheme. By 2021, it's expected every state and territory government will have handed over their ID photos. But the capability has hit a stumbling block. Last year, the Keystone Bill, which would allow the Department of Home Affairs to aggregate the state and territory's databases into a single national database, was knocked back by the PJCIS, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. And the reason they pushed back on that was because it didn't have adequate privacy protections and not enough transparency around how it would be used. There was also far too much discretion given to Home Affairs with a a general sort of lack of oversight surrounding the system. Geoffrey Holland, a barrister and lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, says a large part of the problem the PJCIS had with the bill was a lack of detail. If you have a look at who can have access to the information or the purposes for which it can be used for, they're quite broad and they're quite general. Jeff says the Australian government has previous form with this kind of scope creep. It, in some ways, very similar to the changes that were brought in for metadata collection a couple of years ago, where apart from there being specified government agencies, there's also reference made to the purpose, and that is for law enforcement. But one of the criticisms is that any use by law enforcement should only be limited to serious offences. But at the moment, that's not sufficiently defined within the bill. The metadata bill Jeff's referring to mandates that internet service providers hold on to their customers' metadata for two years. Originally intended only for law enforcement agencies, in 2018, it was revealed that local councils had requested people's metadata in order to investigate illegal dumping. Jeff's convinced that the bill will pass eventually. It's unlikely members of the LNP will vote against it. 
The bill is still before Parliament, but we don't know what the next steps will be. Once it passes the House of Representatives, it has to go to the Senate. Now, the makeup of the House of Representatives is such that it's unlikely that you'll find government members opposing it. So uh, you can almost guarantee that it will pass with or without the support of the opposition. And legislation of this nature is politically tricky to oppose. Particularly for the last 19 years, it's very difficult when you have such a explosive political situation. It can be difficult at times for opposition parties or minor parties to, in fact, oppose legislation such as this because... On the one hand, we're being told by the government that it's necessary to stop things like terrorists and uh, to stop child abuse. But if an opposition party, for example, opposes it, quite often you'll find that it's then being sold to the public by the government as the opposition are weak on law and order or they're weak on terrorists. They don't have effective policies to prevent child abuse. And so it it can be very difficult for members of the the major political parties to attempt to express general concern about the bill. In the UK, mass surveillance is already a reality. Facial recognition technology has been in use there since at least 2015, at festivals, protests and other public events. UK use of the technology has been much broader than what the Australian government is planning for the capability. UK police have used facial recognition technology to scan through live CCTV footage for people with criminal records or on mental health watch lists. The capability, at least as it exists in the current bill, would only allow users to search for individual faces using already captured images rather than a live stream. The use of facial recognition technology in the UK hasn't gone without legal challenge. In August this year, South Wales Police's use of facial recognition technology was found to have breached Section 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to privacy. South Wales Police say they'll continue using the technology, but make some adjustments to the way it's deployed. Other police forces, including the London Met, are forging ahead with their own facial recognition projects. But even this small illegal victory would be difficult to achieve in Australia, partly due to the way Parliament works and partly due to the vague wording of the Capability Bill. Constitutionally, once a bill passes through Parliament, the only uh, type of oversight that is provided for is that the uh, High Court and other federal courts have uh, jurisdiction over challenges to the validity of the legislation or challenges to its lawful use. So as far as validity goes, there is nothing stopping the parliament from passing a law such as this. Uh, The Australian Constitution is lacking in protection of individual rights. And secondly, with the um, challenge to the law, that is only of any use if the law has in fact been broken. But when you've got such a law 
that is broad and general in its terms, it is particularly difficult to, in fact, identify where there has been or where there may have been a breach of the law. Personal privacy is one of the more obvious concerns with facial recognition technology. Knowing that the government can identify you on any public street from your face alone is an uncomfortable thought. But more uncomfortable is the possibility of the technology getting it wrong and deciding you are, for example, the suspect in a crime. Something that I think should raise a lot of alarm bells for people is so in Detroit, there have been two wrongful arrests of men in the last year. The incidents in Detroit Samantha's talking about involved the arrests of Robert Williams this January and Michael Oliver in May last year both based on the men being identified as suspects by facial recognition software. Both men were later exonerated. Robert was released after 30 hours and Michael's case was dismissed by the judge after it became apparent he was not the person police claimed. Both Robert Williams and Michael Oliver are black. Which is a really important part of this example because... As I said earlier, facial recognition technology has been shown to have a lot of racial biases in terms of how accurate it is on people with uh, darker skin tones and also of on women as well. One thing that stands out in this example in particular was that Detroit police admitted that the technology that they were using had a 96% error rate, which is huge. And so we should really be like wondering What's the decision-making process that is happening that someone could be like, oh yeah, it's 96% error rate, but we'll use it anyway? Studies into the accuracy of facial recognition for people of different ages, ethnicities and genders has found some stark differences. A study by the National Institute of Standards and Technology of 189 facial recognition softwares found that overall these systems misidentified black and Asian faces 10 to 100 times more often than white faces. The systems were also less accurate for women and older people. This inaccuracy has the potential to worsen inequality in Australia, says Samantha. So within the Australian context, part of this idea of closing the gap is to minimise representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in, in incarceration. And so we know that there's racial bias in the models used in facial recognition technology. And so what often happens when you add a layer of technology onto social issues is that it just exacerbates existing conditions of inequality and oppression. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make up 2% of Australia's population, but around 27% of our national prison population. Samantha says that increased police interactions with Aboriginal communities will only intensify this gross overrepresentation. Within Australia, it's hard to see how you can disconnect these two threads. If we want to be moving towards closing the gap, which has just recently um, received a bit more attention of attention because the government is reinvigorating its efforts, then we need to be thinking about these systems of surveillance and how they're used in law enforcement and how they do disproportionately impact uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other minority groups. So there are concerns about who within the government can access this database and the facial recognition capability and the accuracy of many facial recognition systems is in question, with the consequences falling largely on people of colour. 
Along with these concerns is the possibility of people outside the government cracking into the database illegally. Cybersecurity experts have cautioned that collecting all passports and state IDs in one place presents a potential treasure trove for hackers. These worries aren't unfounded. Personal data stored in government databases has been exposed multiple times in just the past few years. In May, personal details of 774,000 current and hopeful migrants were found to be freely accessible on a government platform for submitting expressions of interest to immigrate to Australia. In 2017, The Guardian revealed Australians' Medicare card details were being sold online, apparently easily accessible to the seller through unknown means. At least 75 people's details were sold. Jeff says the bill doesn't address the possibility of a data breach in the capability database. If the system can be breached, and we, I think we're all aware of the fact that government systems are quite often breached, and the legislation really doesn't cover any additional protections that may be put in place to protect the security of the information, nor does it provide any remedy where there has been a breach of that uh, security of the information. But let's assume the facial recognition software the government uses is accurate and the data safely stored. Is this a technology we want in the hands of the government? Both Samantha and Jeff expressed concern about the effect facial recognition, coupled with widespread surveillance, could have on the way people behave. Constant surveillance and the knowledge you could be identified at any time creates a panopticon effect, says Jeff. Governments rely on people modifying their behaviour because of the fear that they may be under surveillance at any any given moment. So it means that people modify their behaviour, that uh, we're forced to behave, even if it's not... Uh, what we're doing is not illegal, you find people modify their behaviour. The capability would make it easier for police to target certain political groups, says Samantha, and make protest more difficult. So when we're talking about something like facial recognition for mass surveillance purposes, it definitely does interact with something like the right to protest and the freedom of association. But it's not just facial recognition technology that we should be worried about in this kind of context. Any kind of surveillance technology used has the potential to have a chilling effect on people's ability to participate in democracy and to be able to to, um, raise concerns with how the government of the day is handling things. Obviously, the specifics of facial recognition technology are particularly alarming because when you combine something like that with... uh, CCTV cameras, which are pretty much everywhere, it starts to get into a pretty scary space where if you're out in public, you know, protesting whatever issue it may be, that if for whatever reason law enforcement agencies want to target those particular protesters, it becomes a lot easier. 
And while the capability legislation has stalled, that doesn't mean police departments aren't already using facial recognition technology. As well as some local councils using it to scan CCTV video feeds, a BuzzFeed news report found a number of Australian police departments had used Clearview AI, a facial recognition tool created by Australian entrepreneur Juan Ton Tat. Clearview AI raises some other interesting questions. So the way that it works or the way that it's been described to work by the founder is that it's essentially a search engine for faces. So anyone with access to this product can upload a face to the system and it finds any other publicly available material that matches that face. And so that database has been scraped from all kinds of social media platforms and they're claiming that they have a database of around 3 billion images, which I believe is bigger than any other facial recognition database that we know of. It was discovered that 2,200 law enforcement agencies around the world used Clearview, including the Australian Federal Police, Queensland, Victoria and South Australian Police Forces. And so this was a pretty big deal because the Australian Federal Police had said publicly that they had not used Clearview um, until this came out and then they had to backtrack and actually say that they did, in fact, use it. So this raises really big questions around transparency, which, as I said, is a really important part of the puzzle when we're trying to determine what is and isn't okay and what is and isn't ethical and what is and isn't uh, an intrusion on our civil liberties. Clearview raises the same privacy issues as the capability and the same issues of consent. People don't have their photo taken for an ID or post pictures on social media with the expectation those images will be scraped into a giant facial recognition database. Despite these concerns, Dr Sharma argues that facial recognition is potentially a public good. If we see the application areas of this facial recognition technology, it has a massive application potential. Apart from just securing a system or you know, unlocking a phone, it can be used for social good. And it could be a very good technology for the community. For example, it can be used for, you know, searching uh, children and adults, you know, just in case they are lost. It can be embedded with the CCTV systems where it can always look for people, for criminal, you know, and it can actually accelerate the whole um, criminal tracking process and also accelerate the whole investigation process for the police and and the legal team in the country. So uh, the application is huge. And Samantha concedes that there are legitimate uses for the technology. Technology is a really useful tool, and I don't think anyone would be arguing that we shouldn't be trying to use it in constructive ways to help address like very serious crimes. For example, in the sort of child pornography sphere, it can be really useful, um, you know, in instances of non-consensual sharing of intimate images using technology to be able to sort of shut that down can be really helpful. But tools can fall into the wrong hands. Unfortunately, it's just quite a challenge to be able to draw really hard lines about when and where and by who this technology is being used. And so while while I would love to be like optimistic that it will only ever be used in circumstances when it's absolutely necessary, I mean, we also have to question who, who is making that decision. Maybe people are satisfied by the government of the day and their choices, but it's also hard to say like what will be the next government's choices in this sort of space.
This podcast is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Community Radio. This episode was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. I'm Caitlin McHugh. Thanks for listening.